Welcome to Bizarro Aficionado. Please, just try and relax. It will only hurt worse if you resist. Welcome to season four, episode four. I'm Gaz Morgan. Remember me? <laughs> oh my God, I'm trying, kids. Life is still a bit wonky, so please bear with me as I navigate taking care of an aged parent with dementia, kick my debt's ass, and blindly navigate life being really incredibly weird. So I'm back. I'm here. I'm not dead. The uh, details of my life are uh, weird, like I said. But uh, yeah, before we uh, get all started here, as we have a lot to talk about in this episode, it, stuff's weird, man. I'm telling you, it just keeps getting weirder. Oh, I want to say hi to two of my favorite fans. So a big bizarro howdy out to Sam and Benny. And if you're listening, you guys are the best. And I'm so glad I finally got to meet you and not just because you're my cousins. But keep your dad out of trouble and keep the vessel between the navigational beacons, boys, all right? And uh, thanks for listening and being so excited about the show. It, it's cool and it helps and I'm thankful. But uh, all right, let's, uh, let's kick this. Let's see, where should we start? All right, so let's start with the biggie. So Congress admits UFOs are not man-made, says threats increasing exponentially. The new budget for America's intelligence services directs the Pentagon to focus its UFO investigations on those objects that it can't identify. So this is huge. And yes, it sounds like more rhetoric we've heard a million times, but it's not. So let's jump in a little deeper. So after years of revelations about strange lights in the sky, firsthand reports from Navy pilots about UFOs and governmental investigations, Congress seems to have admitted something startling in print. It doesn't believe all UFOs are man-made. So buried deep in a report that's an addendum to the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023, a budget that governs uh, America's clandestine services, Congress made two startling claims. The first is that cross-domain transmedium threats to the United States national security are expanding exponentially. We'll get back to that. The second is that it wants to distinguish between UFOs that are human in origin and those that are not. Temporary, temporary non-attributed objects or those that are positively identified as man-made after analysis will be passed to appropriate offices and should not be considered under the definition as unidentified aerospace undersea phenomenal, the document states. So this admission is stunning. Chiefly because as more information about the U.S. government's study of UFOs becomes public, many politicians have stopped just sort, short of claiming the unidentified objects were extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional in origin. The standard time is typically that. The standard line, I'm sorry, is typically that. If UFOs exist, then they're likely advanced, although human-made, vehicles. Now, Obama refused to confirm the existence of aliens, but did say that people have seen a lot of strange stuff in the sky lately when asked directly on The Late Show with James Corden, for example. But now, Congress seems to want to specifically distinguish between objects that are man-made and those that are not. A cross-domain transmedium threat is one that, by the Pentagon's definition, can move from water to air to space in ways that we don't understand. So in July, the Pentagon announced it was opening the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, the AARO, to investigate these threats. 
The bill would reclassify unidentified aerial phenomena, the government's term for UFOs, as unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena and rename the Pentagon's office in line with the new designation. Now, last year, a leaked video that was confirmed by the Pentagon as being authentic appeared to show a UFO seemingly flying beneath the waves. And Senator Marco Rubio, the vice chair of the Senate Select Committee, and super genius, overseeing the intelligence that issued the report, has publicly said he wants the UFOs to be aliens and not foreign weapons. I, I, can they not be either? I, I don't know. I, it's Marco Rubio. I, he answered a question. It's best we can hope, I guess. A large question, of course, is why Congress is seemingly admitting this now in public. After all, lawmakers are privy to classified information that the general public isn't. It strains credulity to believe that lawmakers would include such extraordinary language in public legislation without compelling evidence. Marek von Renenkoff, an Obama-era Department of Defense official, said in an op-ed in The Hill about the budget. Now, according to the op-ed, the comments were first noticed by UFO researcher Douglas Johnson. This implies that members of the Senate Intelligence Committee believe on a unanimous bipartisan basis that some UFOs have non-human origins. Von Renenkoff continues, After all, why would Congress establish and task a powerful new office with investigating non-made man-made UFOs if such objects were proven to not exist? Now make no mistake, one branch of the American government implying that UFOs have non-human origins is an explosive development. A bipartisan group of U.S. legislatures have long put pressure on the Pentagon to figure out what the strange lights are that Americans are seeing in the sky. In 2021, the Department of Defense issued a report detailing more than 100 sightings that it investigated. It said some of what it studied could not be explained with current scientific models and asked for more time and money to study the phenomenon. Congress has given it to them, and now it's asking the Pentagon to focus only on those objects that haven't been designed by human hands. So that's pretty huge. Now we can also approach that from, a, is this just more pork? It's just, just another way for some black ops to get paid for. We don't know. Who knows? Uh, this reporting was done by Matthew Galt uh, for Vice. And uh, I guess we'll wait and see and see what comes from there and if anything. But I think what really struck me is about the undersea part. Now, these are sightings that have been going on since Columbus, since Marco Polo. Both of them reported seeing things fly out of the ocean and into the sky. So it's, it's really enlarging kind of the paradigm a little bit by saying, yeah, I, we're going to lump them all together and maybe they are the same thing. And maybe there is, are, is, are, will be, I don't know, aliens living under the ocean. Who knows? But they know more than we'll know. And we'll find out when it's too late, no doubt. <laughs> and uh, well, you know what, before we move on, uh, I was recently sent some more information on this. So let, let's dive a little more into this and skip the fluff because this is too big of a development to just say it happened and moved on. So let's look, take a look a little more at the press release published by the Department of Defense. Uh, the press release says on July 15th, 2022, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks, in coordination with the Director of National Intelligence, DNI, amended her original direction to the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security by renaming and expanding the scope of the Airborne Object Identification and Management Group, the AOI-MSG, to the All-Domain Anomaly Resolutions Office, the AARO, due to the enactment of the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal 2022, which included a provision to establish an office in coordination with the DNI with responsibilities that were broader than those originally assigned to the AOI-MSG. 
because MSG is good for you now, remember? No, wait, I digress. So when this came out, uh, Honorable Ronard S. Moultrie informed the Department of the Establishment of the AARO within the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security and named Dr. Sean M. Kirkpatrick, most recently the chief scientist at the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency's Missile and Space Intelligence Center, as the director of the AARO. Now, the mission of the AARO that I mentioned before will be to synchronize efforts across the Department of Defense and with other U.S. federal departments and agencies to detect, identify, and attribute objects of interest in, on, or near military installations, operating areas, training areas, special use airspace, and other areas of interest, and as necessary to mitigate any associated threats to safety of operation and national security. This includes anomalous, unidentified space, airborne, submerged, and transmedium objects. Now, the AARO Executive Council, A-A-R-O-E-X-E-C, led by Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, Ronald Moultrie, will provide oversight and direction to the AARO along with these primary lines of effort. Now, this is what it's going to focus on. One, surveillance, collection, and reporting. Two, system capabilities and design. Three, intelligence operations and analysis. Four, mitigation and defeat. Five, governance. Six, science and technology. Hey, so... there will be a lot of this in the show notes, and uh, if you go into this second one, which the first one will be from Vice, and um, this one is actually uh, from Singular Fortean Society, um, they'll actually have the memo here for the, from Hicks, Secretary Hicks, as well as the uh, Moultrie's ARO establishment memos, as well as uh, Dr. Kirkpatrick's bio is all in this second article. But this newly reported expansion of the Pentagon's UFO investigation program comes in the wake of low congressional confidence in their investigative efforts. So again, is there, is, is there a there there? Or is this just being made up again for spreading out black money? We don't know. So... uh Let's see, where was I? Following the release last year, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence much anticipated preliminary assessment report on UFOs. Many in the intelligence community were critical of what they saw as its failure to offer any concrete explanations for most of the incidents analyzed, especially in light of concerns surrounding secret Russian or Chinese technology. Now, the Pentagon then promised to overhaul the task force responsible for investigating UFOs, which led to the AOI-MSG, which has now become the AARO. Are you F-O-L-L-O-W-I-N-G-ing? I I don't know. This continues Congress's increasing interest in UFOs and most recently displayed during a House Intelligence Committee hearing held last May on the subject, the first of its kind in 50 years. The congressional hearing gave lawmakers the opportunity to question the Pentagon regarding the issue of unidentified aerial phenomena, the current government nomenclature for UFOs, as we discussed, and for government officials to explain their current position and outline plans to investigate the issues further. There were few mentions of extraterrestrials during the hearing, although the Pentagon did express a particular interest in reports which include unusual flight characteristics such as incredible speed, transmedium capabilities, again, that's going through air and water, and undetectable means of propulsion. We want technology. I think we're losing this tech race, and if it means we have to reach out to little green men and hope they are on our side, I guess that's where we are now. But, uh, Congressional interest in UFOs has increased dramatically since the existence of the Pentagon's Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program, or AATIP, which reportedly ran from 2007 to 2012, and it was publicly revealed in 2017. 
Interest continued to swell, and in 2019, several senators, including Mark Warner uh, from Virginia, then vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, received briefings on encounters between Navy pilots and UFOs. Then in 2020, the Senate Intelligence Committee, led at a time by Senator Marco Rubio from Florida, included a directive in their Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021, ordering the Director of National Intelligence in consultation with the Secretary of Defense to create a report regarding unidentified aerial phenomena. That bill led to the creation of the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, or the UAPTF. Are you keeping track of all these? Wouldn't want you to get lost. The group responsible for creating the preliminary assessment report mentioned above. So, that's a lot to take in here, and it's a lot of blah, 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 and a lot of letters. But something big is going on, and as usual, we'll be the last to know. And, well, you know, that's just the way it is. But it was a big thing, and uh, we'll just have to sit back, like I said, and see where it actually le- actually leads, if anywhere. So, I mean, we're destroying this planet at a phenomenal rate. You know, we're going to have to leave soon, I would think, at some point, whether soon is a thousand years or 50, I don't know. So in other good news, mysterious tomato flu outbreak is spreading among kids in India. Oh, those rascally kids. The unknown disease causes an eruption of red painful blisters throughout the body. Now, before you start saying, hey, this sounds like monkeypox, well, the difference is that these pustules... I love saying pustules. God, what a world. These will eventually start growing and enlarging to the size of a big tomato. So we have that going for us. So researchers in India are are sounding the alarm over what they describe as a new, with quotes, disease dubbed tomato flu or tomato fever, causing red blisters that can enlarge to the size of a small tomato. No, not a large tomato. Well, they confused me. The cause of the contagious disease is currently unknown. I would assume there's an Italian grandmother to blame. I'm a bad person, I know. I'm sorry to all Italians. Although some researchers expect it might be related to other disease known to spread in the area. I'm just going to let that go. Uh, Writing in the Lancet Journal of Respiratory Medicine, the trio of scientists reports that over 100 children younger than five years have fallen sick with the infection in the Indian states of Kerala and Odisha. After first being identified May 6th in the Kalam district of Kerala, it's since been reported in a number of villages in the state, as well in the city of Bububububu, Bhubaneswar in Odisha. So I will also apologize to anyone listening from India as uh, my pronunciation is terrible. So now kids with tomato fever are said to experience an array of flu-like symptoms, including fever, hence the fever, fever, body aches, but the most prominent feature is the eruption of red painful blisters throughout the body that gradually enlarge to the size of a tomato or a small tomato. Who knows? As long as it's not a rutabaga. The report says that the disease is very contagious, although it appears to be non-life-threatening and relatively mild, lasting 7 to 10 days. I don't care. I don't want tomato-sized legions or, or pustules or bubos. I don't want it. At the moment, it looks like the virus is mild and goes away on its own. But most people who have had this infection are young, and we don't really know what might happen in an immunocompromised person or as if it spreads to the elderly. At the moment, it's still isolated and doesn't appear to have spread beyond India. Professor Vaso Apostolopoulos. I guess I'm apologizing to the Greeks now. What's next? Uh, Study author in immunology and translational group leader at Victoria University said in a statement, Tomato fever is diagnosed once tests have confirmed the infection is not dengue. I don't remember dengue giving you giant pustules, but whatever. And, ah, come on, guys. I, chikungunya, 
the Zika virus, chikungunya, chikungunya, the Zika virus, varicella zoster virus, or herpes. However, as the study points out, the symptoms could possibly be related to other diseases that aren't being tested for, including hand, foot, and mouth disease. Details on the disease are otherwise pretty thin. While public health bodies are keeping an eye on the spread of cases, scientists are yet to isolate and analyze the pathogen, which is absolutely vital if this mysterious infection is to be fully understood and controlled. Until more is known, independent scientists say that people should remain calm but cautious of giant tomato legions. It is unclear if these outbreaks are caused by a single virus or more than one virus. Urgent laboratory testing and genotyping of any virus identified is therefore needed to confirm whether tomato flu killing me, is in fact a new virus, commented Ashley Quigley, who I am thankful has a name I can pronounce. A senior research associate in global biosecurity at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales, who wasn't involved in the report, and we're not even really sure why she's commenting. (laughs) Because we need one person more in there. So in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, hypervigilance and improvement in surveillance techniques and reporting may be picked up more have may may have picked up more infections. However, the long-term effects of COVID-19 could lead to an increase in illness and an already weakened immune system, so we need to be cautious until more is known about this infection added quickly miss not included in this report so (laughs) we have that going for us so that's pretty exciting right kids yeah we're having a good time so in a little bit better news egyptologists have announced that the lost ancient tomb of cleopatra has been found i the ancient tomb of cleopatra queen has been found oh this is going to be a delight so (laughs) Oh, Lord. Cleopatra was the finest lady of her day and one of the most recognizable people in ancient history with unfathomable money and power. Written by a 14-year-old. Let's see. Cleopatra brought us to the world we have now and made significant contributions to human understanding. We should think about her every time we meet a professional woman, such as a doctor, a scientist, or a philosopher. Are philosophers really professionals? I guess if they're teaching it, right? Otherwise, I assume they just smoke pot and ask existentialist questions. Shit, I'm a philosopher. Shit. At the age of 18, Cleopatra became queen. She learned mathematics, economics, and nine other languages. When she was 21 years old, she was building an army in the Sinai Desert and preparing to retake the kingdom. Her cunning moves helped her forge strategic and personal connections with Caesar and Antony, which altered the course of history. She was descended from Macedonians known as the Ptolemies, not even Egyptians. She was the legendary queen of ancient Egypt who had been remembered for millennia as a ravishing seductress. Cleopatra is well-known, yet one of history's greatest mysteries remains unsolved as to where is her tomb. Now, some people think she was buried at Alexandria, the city completely destroyed by the 365 A.D. tsunami, where she was born and reigned from her regal palace. Others assert that her last burial place might be around 30 kilometers away in the historic Tapasiris Magna Temple, constructed in the Nile Delta by her Ptolemaic forefathers. Now, nobody seems to know the location of Egyptian Queen Cleopatra's tomb, which has led to a huge amount of mystery. However, when two high-status mummies from people who lived in Cleopatra's reign were found at Tapasiris Magna, a temple on the Nile Delta, as we just discussed, archaeologists in Egypt are probably close to solving the mystery surrounding her burial. Two uh, high-status mummies from the period of Cleopatra were discovered, like we said, Um, And this was a sensational find, and it highlights the significance of the necropolis that the most recent discoveries were connected to her. The mummies are in terrible condition of preservation, given that they were left undisturbed for 2,000 years while water poured into the tomb, according to the Guardian. 
So I had to take a minute and think about how great it would be to be undisturbed for 2,000 years, 2,000 minutes, five minutes, to just be undisturbed. Anyway, crucial evidence contends that gold leaves were used to wrap the corpses. For the uninitiated, this luxury is only available to people who belong to the highest social classes. Archaeologists believe that these two people had a very good chance of having met Cleopatra. The results of an x-ray of the mummies indicate that one is male and the other is female. 200 coins with Cleopatra's name and image have also been found at the temple altar in addition to the corpses. Now, Dr. Kathleen Martinez, 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 Kathleen Martinez, who has been in charge of the excavation at Tapasirius Magna for more than 14 years, is more certain than ever that Cleopatra's tomb will be discovered there. The huge site has been partially examined. Uh, well, yeah. I guess that counts as finding her tomb. I, I mean, to me, this is like uh, saying you found two rich people buried in New York, therefore they must know I, I don't know, other rich New Yorkers, which I guess they do, but it doesn't mean they're all buried there. So, yeesh, we'll see. That's thin, but all the news that's news, you'll hear here. So, so let's go into uh, something even more absurd. So this is about Project Habakkuk. Uh, it, <laughs> Project Habakkuk, was about creating an eco-friendly, renewable aircraft carrier. Pretty cool. Made of ice and sawdust. Yep. Yep, you've heard that right. All right, so, deep breath. Project Habakkuk. Let's, uh, let's back up a little bit to World War II. So Germany's U-boats in World War II... Uh, posed a real serious problem for the British, who found themselves short on the resources needed for anti-submarine warfare. The Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I forbid Germany from building new submarines. So why have destroyers and aircraft that could hunt submarines at all? A piece of paper had eliminated the U-boat threat to England in the future. Well, the Germans just built U-boats without telling anyone about it because they didn't care about their pa that paper. So when war broke out, about 100 U-boats scattered into the Atlantic, almost like mobile and invisible landmines, just waiting for a hapless merchant ship to stumble upon them. The Atlantic is immense, and the Royal Navy did not have enough ships to hunt all these U-boats down, and the U-boats were smart enough to position themselves out of the range of Allied aircraft. What if there was a way to extend their range with floating bases out in the Atlantic they could land and refuel on? Not aircraft carriers, which the Royal Navy needed to protect its own surface ships at sea. And long-range bombers couldn't possibly land on them. But something else, like a huge barge, maybe. The war meant materials like wood, steel, paint, engines and other supplies for making large ships were already spoken for. Enter Jeffrey Pike, who had an interesting idea. What if they made a huge aircraft carrier out of a unique mixture of wood, pulp, and ice? The idea was to be called Project Habakkuk. Pike was a journalist, educationalist, and inventor. He was already well-known for escaping from an internment camp in Germany during World War I. He was recommended by the chief of combined operations named Lord Mountbatten, you may have heard of him, by cabinet minister Leopold Amory. So he worked for the combined operation headquarters along his friend J.D. Bernal and was regarded as, pretty much as a genius. So this is Pike's solution. So living up to his Wonder Boy reputation, and as Lord Zuckerman described him as not a scientist, but a man of vivid and uncontrollable imagination and a totally uninhibited tongue, he came up with the Habakkuk idea, 
while he was organizing the production of M29 weasels for Project Plow in the United States. Now, Project Plow was a scheme to create an elite unit to be assigned to the winter operations in Norway, Romania, and the Italian Alps. How would they create a floating island base for aircraft and even flying boats to use in the mid-Atlantic while scouting for U-boats? By making them out of Atlantic icebergs, of course. You see, using ice would only require 1% of the energy that was usually needed to make the same mass using steel. So here's his proposal. Get an iceberg, be it natural or artificial, and then level it so that planes could use it as a runway. Also, hollow it out so that it could shelter the aircraft as well. He immediately sent the proposal through the diplomatic bag to the Combined Operation Headquarters. Now, while he was in New, he was in New York, he did this. He made sure that no one would know of his genius plan and labeled it so that only Mountbatten could open the package. In turn, Mountbatten passed Pike's proposal to Churchill, who was excited about the idea. Genius, he probably exclaimed. We don't know what he said. I assume he was drunk in the bathtub. But maybe not. Who knows? On a side note, a German scientist named Dr. A. Gerke had the same concept of the idea before, and he even carried out some preliminary experiments in 1930. However, he wasn't taken seriously, and the idea was treated as a joke. So where do you go from here? With the help of molecular biologist Max Perutz, they determined that it was possible to quickly build an ice flow large enough to withstand the Atlantic conditions. Now, when Petrus, when Petrus explained that icebergs are prone to rolling over and their surface area is too small, the government helped develop Pycrete, named after Pike, P-Y-K-R-E-T-E, like concrete, but Pycrete. It was a mixture of water and wood pulp that is stronger than plain ice when frozen. It also melts slower and it floats. Pycrete could be cast into shapes just like metal, also, it forms an insulating shell of wet wood pulp when immersed in water, protecting its in, uh, interior from melting. Other problems. As per Perutz, ice flows slowly, known as plastic flow. And according to tests, a pycrete ship would gradually sag unless cooled to 3 degrees Fahrenheit insulation that would require the use of a huge refrigeration plant and a complicated system of cooling ducts. Regardless, a large-scale model was soon ordered in Canada to test this possibility, both physically and financially. The Habakkuk model was built on the large-scale model of the Habakkuk built in Alberta was 18 by 9 meters, so about 60 by 30 feet if you're, well, an American and can't figure out meters. And it weighed about 1,000 tons. The location of the experiment was Patricia Lake near Jasper, Alberta, chosen for its seclusion, proximity to a railroad, and its very cold climate. The mock-up was made to look like a floating boathouse to prevent prying eyes from figuring out what was really going on, if anyone could even comprehend this idea. So both Mountbatten and Churchill loved and supported the Habakkuk idea, but the National Research Council of Canada, who did the testing, determined that while feasible in testing, building a single Habakkuk would cost more money in terms of man-hours and machinery than a whole standard fleet of aircraft carriers would cost. Its specifications would have made it truly massive, at 1.8 million tons of displacement and some 2,000 feet in length, it would dwarf a modern nuclear-powered carrier of the U.S. Navy. It would have had 14 propellers along its sides and dozens of cannons and anti-aircraft guns as well. Somehow it would have had a crew of nearly 3,500 personnel and be able to take between one to 200 aircrafts aboard. In the end, the project was canceled and the last meeting of the Habakkuk board meeting being in December 1943. Now, before you dismiss this whole thing as a waste of time and money in the early desperate days of World War II, you might first consider the fate of the prototype abandoned and forgotten on Patricia Lake. It's reported that it took three full summers for it to melt, 
and the pikerite to sink to the lake bottom. And given the relatively short lifespan of most aircraft carriers in the carnage of World War II, that was quite a record. So yeah, Project Habakkuk. <laughs> I told you shit's weird, but I guess it's always been weird. This was World War II, and I know there's a ton of more weird things out there, and I will find them. Oh yes, I will find them and bring them to you. So let's kind of, uh, let's get a little bit lighter here and a little more stupid. And let's go over, um, a man apparently has paddled 38 miles down the Missouri River in a hollowed out pumpkin, as one does. No, it was not a Florida man. It was Nebraska man paddled 38 miles down the Missouri River in a boat, quotes, made from a hollowed out pumpkin to celebrate his 60th birthday and hopefully set a Guinness World Record. Dwayne Hansen set out from the public boat docks in Bellevue, Nebraska at about 7.30 a.m. in the 846-pound pumpkin and arrived in Nebraska City just after 6.30 p.m. And uh, th this comes from very factual reporting um, from the post on the city of Bellevue's Facebook page. So, you know, we're going right into the Associated Press-like level here. So now Hansen had asked Bellevue City officials to serve as witnesses for his record-setting attempt. They say that if you stay in your job long enough, you might just see about everything. And this morning was one of those days, a city witness said in the Facebook post. <laughs> this is what I've become to, Facebook posts. The pumpkin vessel had the name ASS Berta written on the back and had a cup holder carved into the hull. Of course it did. Hansen's wife, family, and friends were also there to document the journey. The city's post said, with some of them following him in a proper boat, just in case the pumpkin ran into any trouble. Maybe it'll turn back into a carriage or something. I don't know. The previous record for the longest journey by pumpkin boat was 25.5 miles or 41.038 kilometers for the rest of the world. And that was set in 2018, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Now, Guinness World Records spokesman Kylie Galloway uh, said that the organization has received Hansen's application for the title and is awaiting evidence to review. Within our application process, we provide the applicant with guidelines that are specific to that record category and must be adhered to to qualify. These guidelines also detail the evidence that must be submitted. Once received and reviewed, our records management team will then confirm the success or failure of the record attempt. Now, Hansen lives in Syracuse, Nebraska, and enjoys growing large pumpkins, gourds, and other vegetables as a hobby. Fun. The city's Facebook post also said. Fun. Hey, he's living his best life. So uh, there's pictures on there, and you can check out the man in his pumpkin boat. Uh, at your leisure in the show notes. So, from Nebraska man to Oklahoma man. Oklahoma man allegedly murdered friend because he summoned Bigfoot during confrontation. Oh, dear. Wait till you see this dude. So, Oklahoma man Larry, Sa Larry Saunders, 53, is accused of murdering Jimmy Knightson during a confrontation while fishing. Oklahoma man Larry Sanders has been arrested following an incident last weekend that resulted in the death of his friend, Jimmy Knighton. According to the press release from the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, the OSBI, Saunders and Knightson were noodling, not canoodling, mind you, just noodling, a type of barehanded fishing on July 9th in the South Canadian River when a confrontation ensued, during which Saunders reportedly struck and strangled Knightson. Right. Saunders was initially arrested on an outstanding warrant, and of course, and booked into the Pototoc County Jail after sheriff's deputies responded to a call about an alleged killing last Saturday afternoon outside of Ada, Oklahoma. Deputies reportedly arrived to find Saunders admitting to a family member that he had killed Knightson. Knightson's body was discovered the following day on July 10th during a search by Pototoc 
and Seminole County Sheriff's deputies and OSBI agents. So as part of their investigation, authorities have uncovered what appears to have been Saunders' motive in the killing. <laughs> God. He appeared to be under the influence of something. You think? I would assume probably meth. But Sheriff John Christensen said his statement was that Mr. Knightson had summoned Bigfoot to come and kill him, and that's why he had to kill Mr. Knighton. It is unknown what the exact nature of the men's interest in Bigfoot was while noodling, although Oklahoma has had its share of sighting reports. The BFRO, Bigfoot Field Research Organization, has recorded 109 sightings for the state, dating back decades. Saunders has been charged with first-degree murder, which could carry the death penalty in Oklahoma. So, is it just better for him to go this way? You know, it's like, well, I don't want to be killed by uh, Bigfoot, so I'm going to kill you, and then they'll kill me a different way. Or he could have left. So, you know, I'm going to say meth. This was brought to you by meth. All right, here's another big one. Um, I've covered uh, the Somerton Man mystery on the show before, and no, of course I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't remember what season that was, but we definitely covered Somerton Man, the the body that was found on the Australian beach. Could have been a spy. No one was really sure who he was. Well, it looks like they may have solved with quotes around it, as DNA points to man's identity. So let's take a look at this. So Brisbane, Australia, a professor who has dedicated decades, dedicated decades to solving one of Australia's most enduring mysteries claims he has discovered the identity of the Somerton man. Derek Abbott from the University of Adelaide says the body of a man found on one of the city's beaches in 1948 belonged to Carl Charles Webb, an electrical engineer and instrument maker born in Melbourne in 1905. South Australia Police and Forensic Science South Australia have not verified the findings of Abbott, who worked with renowned American genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick to identify Webb as the Somerton Man. Now, Forensic Science SA declined to comment and referred uh, the reporting agency to SA Police, who said there were no new updates and that the police would provide further comment when results from the testing are received. Using DNA sequencing, Abbott says he and Fitzpatrick were able to locate the final piece of a puzzle that has captivated historians, amateurs, sleuths, and conspiracy theorists for more than 70 years. Last May, South Australia police responded to Abbott's calls to exhume the Somerton man's body, and experts on Forensic Science SA started work to try to find the best way to analyze his DNA. But in the end, Abbott, a professor in the Adelaide University School of Electrical and Electronic Engineering, claims it was strands of the man's hair trapped in a plaster death mask made by police in the late 1940s that provided him with what he says is proof of the man's identity. Police gave Abbott strands of the hair a decade ago as he continued what had become a personal quest to solve the Somerton Man mystery. The hair was examined for years by a team of DNA experts at the University of Adelaide who provided the DNA information that allowed Abbott and Fitzpatrick to further narrow the field. By March, Abbott said he had already established Webb's name through years of painstaking work with Fitzpatrick to build a complete family tree of around 4,000 names that led to Webb, whose date of death had not been recorded. By filling out this tree, we managed to find a first cousin three times removed on his mother's side, said Abbott, and on July 23rd, they matched DNA obtained from the hair to DNA tests taken by Webb's distant relatives. It's like one of these folklore mysteries that everybody wants to solve, and we did it, said Fitzpatrick, who has investigated other cold cases, including the disappearance of Amelia Earhart in 37 and the 1948 crash of Northwest Flight 4422. It just felt like I climbed and I was at the top of Mount Everest, said Abbott, at the moment they made the apparent DNA match. While the discovery appears to close the file on the Somerton Man mystery, the apparent confirmation of Webb's name raises many more questions about who he was and how he died.
It verifi if verified, it also creates more questions about the strange clues around the case, including the final words of a Persian poem found in his watch fob pocket and what appeared to be wartime code scribbled in a book. That for many years prompted speculation that he may have been a spy. Those clues can now be reinterpreted with information from public records, but the full truth may only emerge with time as word of the man's reported identity spreads. So let's kind of go over what we know already since it's been probably at least a season or two. The Summerton Man mystery began in the early hours of December 1st in 1948 when beachgoers found a body lying on Summerton Beach in Adelaide. The man was well-built, about 40 to 50 years old, 5 foot 11 inches or 1.8 meters tall, had gray-blue eyes and gingery brown hair that was graying at the sides. He wasn't carrying identification, forcing police to look for clues. According to an inquest held in the years after his death by investigators keen to close the case. In his pockets, they found tickets that suggested that he had taken the train to Adelaide Railway Station the day before and checked in a suitcase in the station's luggage room. The suitcase contained clothes with the labels torn off, and police told the inquest that a tailor thought his coat had U.S. origins. Despite those clues, the case didn't supply them with a name either, the inquest heard. The man's fingerprints and photograph were sent around the world, including to the United Kingdom, United States, and English-speaking countries in Africa. A, a letter dated January 1949, signed by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, confirmed the U.S. had found no match for his fingerprints in its files, the inquest heard. Perhaps the most baffling clues came several months after the body was found. A pathologist re-examined his clothes and found a hidden fob pocket containing a rolled-up piece of paper printed with the words Tamam Shud, Tamam Shud, meaning the end or finished in, pers in Persian. They're the final words of the poem The Rubiat by 11th century Iranian polymath Omar Khayyam and had been torn from a book later handed in to the police. An unnamed man said he found it discarded in his car on November 30th, the day before the Somerton's man's death. The man had no further information and the book supplied yet more baffled clues. Police traced a handwritten phone number on its back cover to a woman who lived nearby Adelaide suburb of Glenig. She was reportedly horrified when shown the death mask, though denied she knew the man. Near the phone number were scribbled letters that some surmise could be secret wartime code, though all attempts to decipher it have failed. It now appears the truth is potentially more pedestrian. So who was Carl Charles Webb? Now, according to Abbott, Webb was born November 16, 1905 in Footscray, a suburb of Victoria's state capital, Melbourne. He was the youngest of six siblings. Little is known about his early life. Abbott says that he later married Dorothy Robertson, known as Doth Webb. When Webb emerged as the prime person of interest in the family tree, Abbott and Fitzpatrick set to work securing public records for information about him. They checked electoral rolls, police files, legal documents. Unfortunately, there were no photos of him to make a visual match. The last known record we have of him is in April of 1947 when he left Dorothy, um, said Fitzpatrick, founder of Identifiers International, a genealogical research agency involved in some of America's most high-profile cold cases. He disappeared and she appeared in court, saying that he had disappeared and she wanted a divorce, Fitzpatrick said. They had no known children. Fitzpatrick and Abbott say... Abbott say Robertson filed for divorce in Melbourne, but 1951 documents reveal that she had moved to Butte, South Australia, 144 kilometers or 89 miles northeast of Adelaide, establishing a link to the neighboring state where the body was found. It's possible that he came to this state to try and find her, Abbott speculated. This is just us drawing the dots. We can't say for certain uh, if this is the reason he came, but it seems logical. 
The information on public record about Webb shed some light on the mysteries that have surrounded the case. They reveal he liked betting on horses, which may explain the code found in the book, said Abbott, who had long speculated that the letters could correspond to horses' names. And the Tamum Shud poem, Webb liked poetry and even wrote his own, Abbott said, based on his research. So what evidence is there? So back in 1949, when no one came forward to identify the body, it was embalmed and a plaster cast was made of the man's face as a physical reminder of who he was. Some hair inadvertently became trapped in the plaster, preserving some DNA, while the rest of the body was buried. Decades later, in 1995, Abbott heard about the case and set about trying to unravel it. So in 2011, SA police gave Abbott access to 50 hairs found embedded in the Somerton man's mask. So scientists at the University of Adelaide could attempt to extract the DNA. Around 20 people at the university worked on the project over the years. In 2012, the university team extracted DNA from the hair showing the Somerton man's maternal group. Then seven years later, they made a major breakthrough to refine the halo group further to H4A1A1A, uh, Abbott said. By that time, Abbott and Fitzpatrick had been working for years to re-examine clues from his body in the suitcase, anything that might shed more light on the case. They said they used gene genealogy to mine DNA databases to build the family tree which led the web, confirmed by the work on the pieces of hair. This is probably one of the older cases that has been solved using this methodology, said Fitzpatrick. This hair is not only 70 years old, but it's been in a plaster cast for 70 years. Abbott said he had not taken his findings to SA police as they were concluding a parallel investigation. Their protocol is not to talk about the case until their part is done. They'll most likely approach us, University of Adelaide, after our announcement the DNA findings are incontrovertible. For Fitzpatrick, there are now more questions to answer. I'm really very interested in helping solve the mystery of how he died. I would like to see the toxicology done, and I would like to find out what happened to Dorothy. Abbott says that they're convinced they found their man. In anything like this, you can only be 99.999% sure that it's right, he said. Strange things can happen. There can be a twist. Just say hypothetically that if this guy had a brother that was adopted out of, you know, at birth, then we don't know about, and it's really his brother? But he says that's probably unlikely. Uh, DNA was also uh, definitively put to rest speculation that the Somerton man was the grandfather of Abbott's wife, Rachel Egan, Abbott said. The couple met when, he, when his search for answers led him to her father, Robin Thompson, Robin Thompson, who seemed to share some of the same physical attributes. Abbott says finding out there was no link was a great relief. It was just the tension of not knowing either way, he said. So it's a relief just to know the truth. Abbott now hopes their findings will be publicly verified and others will build on the information to create a fuller picture of the Somerton man and who he was. Now thought to be Carl Charles Webb, not a spy, but a Victorian man who died one day alone on a beach. All right, that, uh, let's lighten that up a little bit. So I don't think anyone will be confused if I use the term or the phrase Goonies never say die. Well, I have some Goonies news. That the centuries-old shipwreck thought to have been the inspiration for the Goonies has been discovered off the Oregon coast. So, it, <laughs> it may not have been a mountain of pirate treasure, but archaeologists have discovered remnants of a centuries-old shipwreck that they believe inspired the movie The Goonies. A team of volunteers unearthed over 20 pieces of wood in a cave off the Oregon coast in June. It turned out to be wreckage from a Spanish galleon called the Santo Cristo de Burgos, also known as the Beeswax Wreck. After the vessel capsized in 1693, locals found pieces of cargo washed ashore, including chunks of beeswax, giving the wreck its name, said Scott Williams, president of the Maritime Archaeological Society, an Oregon-based organization that worked in the excavation of the wreck. 
Now, an Oregon local was searching for agate gemstones along the coast when he discovered some of the timber a few years ago. The resident said that he had heard stories of the beeswax wreck since he was a child, which led him to believe the beams were more than driftwood. It took nearly two years to organize a team to excavate the remaining known timbers between delays caught by the COVID-19 pandemic and the time it took to secure the correct permits. The team found the timbers in a rocky area at the base of the sea cliffs that were only exposed at very low tide. This meant there was only a small window of time for when the wood could have been safely retrieved. Based on their size and shape, William's team thinks the pieces made up parts of the ship's lower hull, such as the ribs or supports as well as the upper hull's decking. So researchers believe the timbers came from the Santa Cristo de Burgos that capsized near Astoria, Oregon, while sailing from the Philippines to Acapulco, Mexico, Countless explorers and settlers in the region wrote of the wreck and the cargo pieces they said they had discovered the centuries that, in the centuries that followed, Williams said. While the beeswax wreck may not be overflowing with gold, there are many similarities between it and the ship from the movie The Goonies, Williams said, giving its location on the Oregon coast and the mystery surrounding its fate. Steven Spielberg may have gotten inspiration from these stories to write and produce the classic film The Goonies. The 1985 movie follows a group of teenagers in Astoria who embark on an expedition to find a long-lost pirate treasure they believe is hidden along the Oregon coast. The timbers are being analyzed at the curation facility of the Columbia River Maritime Museum in Astoria. Uh, William says his team hopes to publish additional details on the discovery in a scientific journal to aid in future research. They'll also be looking for more parts of the wreck using magnetometers and sonars, Williams said. No word from Williams if any of them performed the truffle shuffle as soon as they got the news. But so that is uh, the Goonies ship. So that's pretty cool and exciting. I always liked maritime archaeology as an archaeologist myself. So that was, uh, that was pretty exciting. So let's see, what else have we got here? We've got mysterious spheres reportedly fell on the top of a tree in Veracruz, Mexico. Or experts believe that they have found the lost American colony of Roanoke. Well, Roanoke wins. So experts believe they have found the lost American colony of Roanoke. So has the mystery of the lost Roanoke colony been solved? A local expert appears to have dug up compelling evidence. The disappearance of 115 people in the 16th century is an enduring puzzle of the New World. Did they simply leave, or did something terrible happen to them? Either way, the group were never seen again. Hatteras Island is thought to be one place the colonists went. After abandoning their new home, which became Dare County, North Carolina, named after one inhabitant, Virginia Dare. The island was formerly named after the Croatoans, a Native American tribe who lived there. Emergency medical technician and part-time archaeologist, wow, one of my people, Scott Dawson, is one of today's residents. He figured this is where Roanoke's pioneers wound up, and all he had to do was prove it. So back in 2009, he and the University of Bristol's Mark Horton began exploring the area. Quoted by the Daily Mail, Horton says massive political eruptions and disagreements and people walking out and things probably followed once Roanoke fell apart. This may have led to social splintering. I'm pretty confident one group at least, probably the pretty substantial part, came out to Hatteras Island, he adds. It took a few years, but in 2013, Horton and their team hit the, art the artifact jackpot. Thousands of items were recovered from the island, many of them from the Croatoan tribe. However, parts of the trove can be connected to white settlers. What was found? Uh, alongside tribal tools, weapons and beads were writing slates and an iron rapier. Most interestingly, some objects had been adapted for other uses. For example, a copper earring had been fashioned into a fish hook. I can't believe we found what we found, commented Dawson to local news outlet The Outer Banks Voice. It's kind of surreal, but 
we not only found evidence of mixed architecture of houses, but also metallurgy. There had been blacksmith shops, and there had been working in copper and lead, and this continues right on into the 1600s. It's hard to say how many, but a few dozen at least lived for a few decades down there in the villages and continued to work in metals. However, now the team believes that they've located the actual survivor's camp where the colonists arrived on Hatteras before becoming assimilated with the Croatoan tribe. An archaeological dig was scheduled to confirm their analysis and bring up any artifacts to be found, but the current global health situation has delayed the final answers. So hopefully they'll be able to get some more answers now that things are clearing up, as long as we all don't get goddamn tomato pox or whatever in the hell it's called. Dawson's island-based family tree stretches back to colonial times. He's written a book about his experiences, The Lost Colony in Hatteras Island, which tells the story of what archaeologists from around the world have discovered beneath the surface of old Native American villages of the past, and what impacts those discoveries have on the narrative of the 1587 settlement that disappeared from Roanoke. So as well as Hatteras, the team checked out Buxton and Frisco, two historic Native American First People villages. In fact, these latter locations yielded so much of interest that Hatteras only went properly under the shovel later on. Now for Dawson, the Croatoan narrative is important as that of the missing settlers, they showed nothing but love and charity and kindness to take these people in and feed them and assimilate with them and show them love and kindness, he tells Outer Bang's voice, and no one even knows who they are. Roanoke was supposed to be the first triumph of Queen Elizabeth I's expansion into the New World. So maybe that'll help you wrap your, your mind around how long ago this was. Elizabeth I. Expansion into the New World. In 1585, Sir Walter Raleigh sailed out and laid the groundwork. However, the initial expan uh, experiment failed. The food ran out and the settlers faced hostility from the natives. A couple years later, Raleigh's man, Governor John White, took charge of another group. It included his daughter, Eleanor White Dare. She gave birth to Virginia Dare, the New World's first English baby. John White returned home but had to wait three years before he could get back to Roanoke. War with Spain threw a spanner in the works, and he finally set foot back in the colony to find the place deserted. One, of the ma one major clue was a wooden post with Croatoan carved on it. Experts see this as a likely destination for the colonists. While it could have also indicated an attack, that idea doesn't hold water with Dawson. Roanoke was trading and living with the Croatoan people at the time, and things seemed friendly enough. The Croatoans spoke English. Current th thinking is that Eleanor and company not only created a survivor camp, but integrated with the tribe. Dawson says to Outer Bank's voice that when he, White, saw that message three years later, he didn't say, oh my God, what does this word mean? He knew exactly where that was and why they were there, and he said so. Sadly, the anxious father was prevented from landing on Croatoan Island by weather conditions. He never found out if Eleanor and Virginia were there. So for this archaeological crew, the vanishing is more of a legend than a reality. Where did the idea of Lost Colony come from? Dawson points the finger at a 1930s theater production. That's the first time anybody ever referred to them as Lost. It didn't make a play about a mystery. They created a mystery with a play. Now, Horton is keen to point out that the vantage point of Hatteras Island, with a good view of the water, it's still possibly the best place to wait for ships to arrive from England. Of course, there are other theories of what went on at the colony. As recent as 2016, American Horror Story devoted a sixth season to Roanoke, keeping the myth alive. Disease or something more violent are two options behind the empty location. Smallpox was certainly at large, and the Croatoans are believed to have died out by the following century. History.com writes that in 1998, archaeologists studying tree ring data from Virginia found that extreme drought conditions persisted between 1587 and 1589. These conditions undoubtedly continued to the demise of the so-called lost colony. Then there is the infamous Dare Stones. The first was discovered in 37, featuring an account of hardships and violence written by someone who could have been Eleanor. 
it read that baby Virginia and her husband, Ananias, were done away with by Native Americans. According to experts, the stone says more than half the settlers died, and eventually there was news that a ship had arrived off the coast. The Native Americans worried the Europeans would take revenge, so they fled. Soon after that, shamans warned of angry spirits and all, but seven of the rest of the colonists were killed. Other stones were discovered, but the arrangements is generally thought to be a hoax. Dawson and his fellow explorers will have to wait to next year to extract more information. Hopefully something conclusive will be found and the book closed on this troubling saga of American identity. So, seems like a whole bunch of things are uh, maybe sort of, kind of, sort of, maybe if coming to conclusion, because they maybe sort of, kind of, sort of, kind of um, discovered that, you know, the government admits to UFOs. They kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of, kind of, kind of, sort of found the Somerton man. They kind of, kind of, sort of, sort of, kind of, kind of, sort of found Rowan. What happened to Roanoke? And uh, a meth head killed a guy for summoning Bigfoot. So, well, that's what I have here today. So let's wrap this up. You guys can get back to your life and I'll once again, try not to take two, three months to get another episode out, but I'll do the best I can. But anyway, if you love the show when it happens and you'd like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a comment and uh, to subscribing. Again, we are on YouTube if you want to hear it there, if that's easier for you to get to. If you listen to other podcasts, we're on pretty much every platform where you know you can get podcasts. So check us out there. Um, information on all this will be in the show notes. And... And that's uh, about all I got for you guys today. So thank you for listening and bearing with me and still listening to the show. I know a lot of people are jumping ship and that's my own fault. And I apologize. But for those that are hanging in, thank you so much. And uh, I'll see you next time. Be safe, stay well, and stay bizarre. Well, I'm back in the game and I'm feeling myself. Level up, now I'm building myself Every day, never take a break, still in myself Addicted to the growth, only focused on well Still slide to my 9 to 5 Just by the time, till I'm on the rise Blasting off, I'm not astral This ain't frat rap, tell the haters fuck off I'm shining, so blinded As a vibe, got no diamonds But boy, got nothing in my wallet Spend all my green on the green quite often Still flawless, stand tall and Say fuck it to me, face call it Time to ride the wave, override the shade Inhale the haze